Welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. The Mind-Body Connection. This is a report from Santa Barbara on the 4th National Clinical Conference on Cannabis Therapeutics. For this half hour, we focus on the patients. My name is Dean Becker, producer of the Drug Truth Network radio programs. In this half hour, we will bring focus to bear on the patients, both those supplied by the federal government of the United States and those supplied by providers in the 11 states which allow for medical cannabis. My name is David L. Lander. I was in a TV show called Vernon Shirley, and I played Squiggy. People are speaking up. They're telling the truth about medical marijuana. They're daring to say it because there's no one on the other side who can really fight convincingly to continue this. Your thoughts, sir, why aren't more celebrities speaking up? Well, I certainly can't uh, blame any celebrity for not speaking out, and I, you know, it's fine if any celebrity does. I think people just don't, you know, marijuana, as good as it is, uh, still, you know, in this country, it's got kind of a, a nasty reputation for the wrong reasons, but it does. I mean, if somebody likes marijuana and they, they'd rather people not know about it, well, it just means he's afraid that what people will think, and, um, you know, that matters to people. Well, you're talking to someone who was diagnosed with MS uh, 21 years ago, and for 15 years, I kept it a secret. It's the same thing with marijuana. People maybe feel better on it, but they'll keep it a secret because in a lot of places, marijuana isn't legal. And it's not like, well, maybe you should go out and speak. It's like kind of, I don't know, maybe they won't hire me. And I think that has a lot to do with, with everything. I, I know if we're dating back to Robert Mitchum and uh, going forward, uh, every other rapper and hip-hop uh, artist has been busted at least once. It's almost a, a badge of honor. Why don't they do more? They're, they're already outed. Well, I, maybe just like there isn't much of a place for them to do more. It's not like, well, you know, we have the, uh, the I do marijuana telethon once a year, and every, why didn't he show up for that? Well, there is nothing like that, so that's why he doesn't show up for it. And he's probably in jail anyway, so. You know. The American people know this truth full well. Seventy percent always vote for medical marijuana. How, how do we motivate the, the average individual out there to do more? Well, the average individual is fine. I mean, once you cut it off, maybe there'll be a riot or something. But uh, it's basically, you know, people are afraid to, uh, you know, people who make the laws in this country, the, the Senate and the Congress, and they look at, you know, marijuana is sort of, if you're for medical marijuana, somebody's going to say, well, that means you're soft on crime. The range of patients who find relief through the use of medical cannabis range from Mr. David Landers, who lives in the Prop 215 state of California, to the federally supplied medical patients, to those who live in states without medical marijuana laws, like New York's Montel Williams. Seeking to keep the government from using his words against him, Mr. Williams asked those in attendance not to record his statement. If you have cameras at the tables right now, or you have video cameras at the tables, or you have recorders, I'm going to ask you to please cut them off. And I feel very strongly about this, and the reason why is because we're living in a time when you don't have the right to say what's on your mind. It 
takes a bit of resolve to stand for the rights of medical cannabis patients, and Mr. Williams does that on a daily basis. I can't tell you what this Emmy Award-winning military hero told us there at the conference, for he asked us not to. But I will tell you this. He spoke of truth, justice, and the need for courage to bring this truth to light. I got a chance to ask Mr. Williams a question at a very frantic press conference following his speech. The truth is obvious, it's glaring, and yet so many people, some of these celebrities perhaps, that know this truth are standing for ignorance. How, how can we encourage these other celebrities to do more? You know what, again, let's not make it adversarial, let's make it inviting. Invite people to some of these conferences so that they'll feel as if they can come in and speak out. And I mean, I, I, to me, you know, since I've been doing this now, I think America knows. They get it. I, I do interviews, and I can be asked a question about what I feel about the port sale bills, okay? And then turn right around four seconds later and be asked, so how's the fight for medicinal marijuana? And most people ask me, how is it going as if are we winning? So it's crazy. If I get asked this question by most of the most conservative reporters in America, them in America wants the same thing. My name is Bill Britt, director of the Association of Patient Advocates. I'm a, a post-polio patient. I have epilepsy. Some say marijuana is a crutch, and I tend to agree with them. Uh, crutches are good things. Crutches help me uh, get around. They uh, ease my pain. They allow me to do things that I normally wouldn't do. If I lay in bed, I have virtually little pain, and I can, you know, but you know what? Laying in bed gets old after a day, a week, a year. I have muscle pain. I have muscle spasms. I have nausea. Uh, I have very uh, uh, low appetite. I very, have no appetite. My muscles are in constant spasms. So everything about cannabis, all the side effects, the euphoria, the depression, it just helps everything about me. Many people don't realize that the U.S. National Institute of Drug Abuse, NIDA, administers a contract with the University of Mississippi to grow cannabis for research purposes and is the only legal source for cannabis in the United States. NIDA also supplies cannabis to seven or perhaps as few as five patients under the so-called Compassionate Use Act Investigational New Drug Applications. This began in 1978 as part of a lawsuit settlement by the Department of Health and Human Services. To this day, we are aware of at least five patients that receive 300 pre-rolled marijuana cigarettes each and every month from the U.S. government to help alleviate their medical conditions. Next, we'll hear from these federal patients. First up, Mr. Irv Rosenfeld. I have multiple congenital cartilaginous exostosis and a variant of the syndrome pseudo-pseudo-hypoparathyroidism. In lay terms, what that means is I have bone tumors growing outwardly, basically like from my wrist and all the major bones of the body, tumor, actual bone growing into the muscle in the vein, stretching the muscle in the vein, making it very painful, very tender. More important, the movement of the muscle in the vein going over the tumor made it very easy for me when it was tight to tear a muscle or, more important, tear a vein. As you well know, if you tear a vein, you can hemorrhage. A clock could break off, go to my heart, my brain, my lungs, and I'd be dead. 
That's, of course, what the doctors were scared of when they discovered this at age 10. The disease says this, that any tumors you have at puberty, they will grow as long as you grow. Once you stop growing, if you can survive that long, then you should be okay because the tumors will stop growing. You'll develop no new tumors after puberty. So in an early age, I had to have x-rays taken you know, every month, month and a half to two months to watch the progress of these tumors. And of course, I was taught how to take care of myself. It got to a point where certain tumors grew and I had to have operations. Well, operations weren't fun, but it was a necessary evil because if I didn't have it, the tumors would have gone malignant. So it was that simple. Because of this, I had very debilitating uh, operations. I, I couldn't walk. I had to learn to walk again. I had nerve entrapment to where I couldn't pair, pair shoes on for three years. And this also precluded me from going to public school because I was not healthy. So I was a homebound student from 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grades. During this time, I was given a regimen of different disorders, uh, different uh, medications from anti-inflammatory, from pain medications. But since this was starting at an early age, they were really against giving me heavy narcotics, knowing I'd have to be using them most likely maybe for the rest of my life. So besides the different medications, uh, one of the things that they liked was um, put a little bourbon out at night, and this way you, know, you could sleep at night a little better. So this was also a, a, a part of my regimen. Now, I survived, and during this time, I would go to schools and talk to different kids my own age, back in the late 60s, saying, look at you, you're healthy. Why would you do an illegal drug? Look at me, here I had to do all these legal drugs. And so that was really what happened. I went off to college in Miami from Southern Virginia because of the warm climate, and there I was exposed to the first time called marijuana. Now, marijuana was an illegal drug. And I wasn't going to do it. In fact, I kicked a girlfriend out that moved in with me because she smoked marijuana. Point was that here I was having all these problems, taking all these narcotics, all these drugs, from Dilata to Methaquilone to Paraffin Forte to Butazolidin Alka, uh, you name it, I was taking it. Had everything legal. Here I was at an apartment complex, and all these college students were smoking marijuana, and after we'd be swimming, they'd say, let's go smoke some marijuana and drink some wine. I wouldn't do it. I wasn't going to break the law. After 30 days, I realized I wasn't making any friends, so I gave in to peer pressure for the first time in my life, and I tried it. And it did nothing. It was benign. Uh, I thought this was pure garbage. So if this is what it took to be accepted, then so be it. Well, it was about the 10th time I did it, I was sitting playing a game of chess, and I hate chess. And I realized I sat for 30 minutes, and this was the first time I'd sat for, 30, for more than 10 minutes in five years. And I thought, in what way did I take all the narcotics and drugs that I had? And it dawned on me I hadn't taken anything. Well, then why could I sit? And just then was my turn with the joint. They handed it to me. I looked at this piece of garbage, and I said, this is the only thing I'm doing differently. I wonder if this has any medical benefit. And that's how a light bulb went off. My family's in medicine. We researched it, and lo and behold, we found out this was used as a tincture form of, of uh, cannabis since 1860 to 1937 in this country, made by Eli Lilly Merck, all the major pharmaceuticals, from myriad of disorders, but especially for muscle relaxant, anti-inflammatory for pain. And I thought, voila, that's just what it's doing to me. So I needed to have this. So I took on the federal government because I did not want to be a criminal. And thank the Lord... And also thank Alice and Bob, Alice O'Leary and Bob Randall, with their help, University of Virginia Law School and everybody else, I was able to become the patient, the actually second patient in the United States to receive medical cannabis provided by the federal government. Now, how did that change my life? It meant now that, A, I didn't have to deal with the criminal element, that I was able to get the medicine I needed, and that I was also not have to worry about being arrested. It was a load off my mind. But more important, what it was is this. With the marijuana... I was not having the muscle spasms that I was having. And when I did have them, the severity of them was, was less. Uh, the, the Dilaudid, which I was taking, it enhanced the effects of Dilaudid to where I didn't have to hit it as much. It worked better. I took less. 
Other drugs, sleeping medicines, I decreased on all those to where I didn't have to take very much of it. And the quality of my life went up tremendously. I was able to run a furniture business in Virginia, and I was a much happier person to live with when you're not that much in pain. Plus, when somebody's in pain, you've got to realize they'll do anything when they're in pain. Okay, you'll try anything. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, okay, because all you want to do is get out of pain. You want to feel normal. You want to be like somebody else that you see. That, you know, they get an ache and pain. Oh, I've got a headache or something. And you wish that's all you had. You know, you wish you just had a mild headache occasionally. But you don't. You've got to live with a debilitating disease all your life. So all you're doing is reaching out, trying to find something that works. And I was fortunate enough to find just that, that worked, and that was marijuana. So now because of it, today, I haven't taken any Dilaudid for almost 17 years. Okay. Because of cannabis, I no longer take sleeping medications for the last 17 years. The I do still take Percocet. I'll go through, oh, maybe 20 Percocet every year and a half. So it's very little that I take. And, and the same can be said for Vioxx. Yes, I still take Vioxx. I have a tumor in my right arm that's really bad. It, it almost came surgery several times. And for some reason, the only medicine that helps that is Vioxx. And I can hurt any other tumor in my body. I can take Vioxx for it, and it doesn't work at all. So the point being, you can do all the research studies or whatever and say, well, this works, this works, this works, or maybe it doesn't work. But the patient is really the one who knows. I know that Vioxx works for that tumor. I don't need a doctor to tell me why it works. I know it works. Vice versa, I have no idea why it doesn't work elsewhere. But it doesn't. So that's just the way it is. So here with cannabis, we know that it works. I'm living proof of that. When I go speak at different state houses or wherever I'm at, I always have people against me, of course. And what I try to say to them is very simple, that you're a very knowledgeable person, very knowledgeable, brilliant. But you believe what the government's been telling you. That's fine. If that's true, that the, the marijuana is so detrimental for you, that it, it, it kills brain cells, it, it, it hurts your lungs, it does this, it does that, if all that's true, then explain me. And they used to say, well, you're the 85-year-old man that smokes two to three packs of cigarettes per day and says, what do you mean cigarette smoking causes lung cancer? Look at me. So that was the anomaly until we did the study. And once we did the study of Elvie, George, Barbara, and I, well, lo and behold, we were all fine. IQ testing, brainwave testing, respiratory, we were all fine. So now what I like to say to those people is, if you're so knowledgeable, then explain us. Or do you think we're the only four people in the country that it's not negative for? Thank God we're the only four that got it because anybody else would be detrimental. It's sad, but sometimes that's what they want to believe. The other side can be that narrow-minded. They, they believe the, the rhetoric the government says. So what I try to do is try to tell them that without marijuana, without cannabis, I wouldn't probably be able to be a stockbroker. I'm a very successful stockbroker in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I teach disabled people how to sail boats in Miami every Saturday. Paraplegics, quadriplegics kids that are mentally retarded, um, kids with autism. I'm able to do that using 10 to 12 marijuana cigarettes per day. All my clients know what I do. But I don't want them to see me on TV and go, and somebody in Iowa and go, sorry I say Iowa, but in the middle of the country, go, Ethel, isn't that our stockbroker? Didn't he lose us money? He must have been high on that marijuana. <laughs> so 
I always make sure that I try to tell them, have you ever met anybody in the United States that's ever taken on the federal government and won? I have. If you want that expertise in a stockbroker, then you want me as a broker. <laughs> so why are we here? Patients out of time? Well, we may be out of time somewhat, but at least we can go happy. We've got our medicine. So why is any of us here? Why do we do this? Well, you know, it sucks when you have a bad disorder. Nobody asks for it. Nobody says, well, you know, let me get sick so I can get marijuana. No, nobody does that. A disease happens, and now you've got to deal with the cards that have been dealt to you. You've got to do the best you can. Well, we've been fortunate enough that the best we can do, we've done for ourselves. This is the best that we can hope for. There's nothing better, any medicine out there, that's better for us. And we've done it. But you know something? That's five of us in the United States of over 300 million people. Doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem right. So if we can make something good come of something bad... Okay, my painful disorder and George's painful disorder sucks. Barbara's multiple sclerosis sucks. LV, LV not being able to see sucks. Okay, but if we can help others somehow one day be able to procure that medicine. I mean, when, when Bob and I started this and other people, there wasn't much going on in this country in this back in the you know, mid-70s. I met Bob in 1977 at Old Dominion University. He was speaking there. And, and my life changed completely that day. I'd been fighting the government for five years up to that point, trying to get them to approve my pro program for experimentation use for my disorder. But that went nowhere. Well, they changed my life. Bob's no longer here in body, but he's definitely here in spirit with all of us. So we're carrying the work out that he started, that we started. We're carrying the work out. And so that's what we're here today. That's why this organization exists. So we can carry the work out and show people, hey, look, we are normal people. The only difference between me and someone who's healthy is I use a medicine that's called cannabis, which makes me almost healthy. Now, without this, you'd look at me and you go, oh, man, that's really tough. Now you're looking at me saying, damn, he looks pretty healthy. What does he need marijuana for? And that's what I'm hoping people leave here with, to say, damn, he looks pretty healthy. Because the way I feel is, yeah, I describe myself as a very, very healthy disabled person who's able to accomplish in life basically whatever I want to. And why am I able to do that? It's because I have the medicine that I need. So if we can help others get the medicine they need, then hopefully they'll accomplish what they want to also. Next, we hear from federally supplied cannabis patient, Elvi Musica. I know of no meeting I attend where I meet so many people with international backgrounds and the knowledge of the things I need to learn on a regular basis so I can live here and for the next two years speak about the astonishing things that are happening. When you see the equalizing um, value of cannabis, then you begin to understand and, be, and are able to explain some of the situations to the public in general at the different universities, which I often find myself giving classes at. For me, cannabis came uh, radically into my life in 75 when I was diagnosed with glaucoma and a doctor who saw me going through hell trying the different medicines that were not working and producing a tremendous amount of side effects for me, simply told me if I didn't start smoking marijuana, I would go blind. Needless to say, with my drug lack of education, I question his sanity. <laughs> Uh, ignorance is daring, isn't it? <laughs> so anyway, um, 
I went on to try it because desperation will do that for you. If there's something out there and your world is falling apart because your sight is going away and you have no way to stop this runaway train, you're going to try anything. And gosh, it worked. Lo and behold, it worked. I went to my home in 1976. By the way, I've been using marijuana regularly for 30 full years, mostly on a daily basis. Although they had me convinced that I was trading eyesight for brain cells, I didn't much like that equipment, but I was going to forget all about it anyway, so it didn't matter. <laughs> we tried the different things, but nothing worked, and a very courageous doctor actually took my records, and we documented four months of my using brownies on a schedule, on a regimen he put me on. Although I didn't quite listen to him, I only used half of the amount he suggested. I was put on brownies because psychologically I was not oriented towards smoking and had a big problem with taking drugs. But that turned out real expensive, and soon under the influence of brownies, I realized they lied. If I could handle the brownies, I certainly could handle the smoke. <laughs> Thank God. So we went to the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute, which is one of the best in the world, and a day of incredible, grueling experiences of trying all their things that were available, including literally having the eye pumped. Nothing, nothing reduced the inner ocular pressures I had, which at the time were 49 in my left eye and 56 on the right eye. Needless to say, I was scheduled supposedly for immediate surgery, but I was supposed to go through a week and come back in on Monday to check in to have the operation on Tuesday, and I was scared to death that I wouldn't have sight by Tuesday. So I went to the black part of town with my parents, took me through there, and somehow I scored a bag of pop, went home, baked some brownies, and ate them all weekend. Went to work on Monday, did my day's work, went into the... Um, up uh, to the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute with incredible pressures of 14 and 12. They had never been able to accomplish that with me. But as it was pointed out by Dr. Bellamy this morning, you know, the medical society is not always willing to accept people who are doing the research and are not doing it under their auspices and by their guidelines, which would have led me to total blindness in both eyes. Thank God, you know, some people step over the line. Unfortunately, with all my medical records and with the information I brought them that they could see for themselves, they still convinced me I should start a series of surgeries, which the first one only offered a 30% chance of any, any success whatsoever. Those are not very good odds. And I should have never been told to have the first surgery after I presented that kind of evidence to them. But I was because ignorance blinds us. I went for the next 10 years. Of course, I continued to try marijuana and everything else that came out in the pharmacopoeia. Nothing worked except marijuana, but I didn't always have it. And when I didn't have it, depression definitely set in. You know what? I went to the newspapers and they published my story without a picture and without my name. But many people in my community figured out exactly who that was. And I found out that it was a lie that all marijuana smokers were not dead, degenerate people on the Street. Most of them were my fellow banker people and all the other people that held high standards in my community who were very happy to supply me with my medicine whenever they could. 
The next voice you hear is another federally supplied cannabis patient, Mr. George McMahon. I'm really not going to tell you a lot of story. I'd really like to convert now to what we're here doing, trying to convince people that what we found out by ourselves, you are finding out scientifically. Look, when when um, I got my first joint, was in, it wasn't my first joint. My first medical joint was 1988. I got it from a health worker. I was in a hospital. They said, you got five hours, bud, and I've got tubes to eat, tubes to sleep, tubes to wake up, tubes to breathe. He said, you know, you don't have very much time left in your life. Have you got all your paperwork done? I called my wife and told her to come get me. But what's wrong with me is symptoms. I don't have anything you can name. I'm a biologically sound example of a human being. But like every one of you out there, I've got a little bit difference in my DNA trial trail. Excuse me, at one point I didn't get a protein. So everybody tried to treat that. <clears throat> and my life's been a combination of treatment, treatments and drugs. So what I ended up with by 1988 was a, a pretty cobbled together body that thought it could do anything but was slowly getting taken apart with drugs and treatment again. So you had all of these facts up and you got, I'm taking 17 drugs a day. I'm, I'm taking a form of chemotherapy and I'm taking uh, six to ten Percodans. I can't take morphine anymore. It just doesn't do anything. I don't get addicted. I don't get itchies. I don't get a runny nose. I don't get anything. Except every once in a while I get real sick and flushed all the pills down the toilet and I don't take any pills, no antibiotics, no pain pills. <clears throat> and when I get cut, it heals fast. Didn't used to do that when I was taking substances that were extracted, synthesized, etc. There was always some reason why I wouldn't heal. And it was generally to do with some of the things they were giving me. So does it, if it helps me heal, we don't know. Am I a fast healer? Yeah. So anyway, I'm, no drugs. The only thing I get marijuana for is those same things that every one of us gets, and there's no name hooked to it. It is pain, spasm, nausea, in that order. That's exactly what my protocol says. You don't have to be somebody special, not one of, not one of us that they can define. You just got to have some of those symptoms. And, and that really makes me feel good because that pretty much means I'm right. It's right for everybody. It isn't just for um, me or LV or Herb. And it, we need a whole lot more, which we've been getting, <laughs> of the health field's participation. Because now you guys are coming forward with this most amazing information. Oh, yeah. Well, let me put it in my ditch digging or bicycle fixing or motorcycle terms, okay? Because I can't put it medically. But... Oh, yeah, gee whiz, when you put this oil on that cable, the cable gets smooth again. And the oil to me is, of course, the marijuana. And uh, I sure hope that all the healthcare professionals here know that we really appreciate you. You're right. All the patients that are here, we got lots of help. And just for everybody else that came in, thanks. It's really nice to see you here. Thank you. We close out our focus on the medical cannabis patients with some closing thoughts from Montel Williams. I like a lot of extracts. I don't necessarily like the way some of them affect me. I, here, 
I'll tell you this very clearly. I do a lot of edibles. I eat a lot of baked goods. I use a lot of keef that I, I make in a paste that I actually eat. And for me and for people that I kind of try to help through this process who I know suffer from the same kind of neurologic pain that I suffer from, that seems to be the best, and especially at night for me. I suffer from MS twitching, so I twitch a lot at night. So that seems to be the longest duration. So if I eat that. This is Dean Becker of the Drug Truth Network. I hope you've enjoyed our presentation of the patient segment of the 4th National Clinical Conference on Cannabis Therapeutics, the mind-body connection. There are two other parts to this program featuring the doctors and the nurses. And if you would like to hear these programs online, please visit our website, which is drugtruth.net. These three programs, as well as hundreds of others dealing with the policy of drug prohibition, are available there online. Well, next week I'll be back from Bolivia with some fresh new programming for you, and I might even have one on this week's cultural baggage. Not too sure yet. As always, I remind you there is no truth, justice, logic, or scientific fact to this drug war. We have been duped. Prohibido estoc y valesco.